All right, folks, before we get to the main thing, I want to let you know that this episode of Oil & Gas Upstream is made possible by our good friends at Technip FMC. Now, you probably know them for their subsea business, but did you know that Technip FMC is doing fantastic things for the industry at the surface? The latest innovation is called Emission. And Emission will let you monitor and control vapor pressure in real time. To learn more, visit TechneepFMC.com. Oil and gas production is the union of natural systems with advanced science and complex engineering. Smart people across the globe create this remarkable place we call Upstream. And each day brings a new challenge. This is the Oil and Gas Upstream podcast, where we look at how these systems come together and learn from the people who make it happen. Welcome to Oil and Gas Upstream. I'm Elena Melkert, your host. Some of you know me as a former director for Oil and Gas Upstream Research at the U.S. Department of Energy. I retired from the DOE about a year ago and founded a small consultancy and became a podcast host. Before I introduce our guest, I'd like to thank Technip FMC, our sponsor, for this podcast. And I want to ask you to do me a big favor by answering a one-question survey. It takes about 10 seconds, and the link is in the show notes below. In return, we will happily send you some stickers for your laptop or your hard hat or your kids. And now I'd like to introduce today's guest, Joe Franz of Franz and Associates. Hi, Joe. Thanks for being with us today. Hi, Elena. Thanks for having me on the show. And uh, I've heard great things about the podcast so far. Oh, gosh. Well, you and I know each other for quite some time. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll get into that um, starting, starting my career in the oil and gas sector. So Joe is um, the CEO of France and Associates. Associ- Joe is the CEO of France and Associates, a consulting company working in the upstream oil and gas sector. From 2009 to 2019, he worked for Range Resources as the VP of Engineering and Technology in the Marcellus and Utica Plays. Prior to Range, he was president and CEO of Unbridled Energy, a startup oil and gas company. Joe started working in shale reservoirs in 1984 with Getty Oil and has been involved in completion and reservoir simulation projects for many decades. He also worked uh, as a consultant for 16 years for Holditch and Schlumberger at DCS and managed offices in PA in Pennsylvania and Oklahoma. He has authored or co-authored more than 60 publications and taught several industry courses. Joe served on numerous technical committees within Society of Petroleum Engineers and recently completed a term as regional director for the SPEI board. He is a two-time distinguished lecturer with SPE, and he earned his bachelor's in petroleum and natural gas engineering from Pennsylvania State University in 1981. Joe, thank you for all of your service to Society of Petroleum Engineers. And I guess I should note that we're recording here today at the SPE Hydraulic Fracturing Technology Conference. Um, We're in a quiet space, unlike a previous uh, uh, recording that we made today. Um, It's it's quiet, and so Joe's going to tell us uh, some about his work and some about his history and kind of teach us something about um, technology's current state-of-the-art, especially with respect to hydraulic fracturing. So, Joe, welcome again to uh, our podcast. Tell us something about um, France and Associates and what you, what you do there and how you do it. So, 
I retired from range about four years ago, and my wife was still working, and I realized uh, I wasn't ready to retire. I was only 60, so I'd been working with a couple companies, uh, service companies at range, uh, ResFrac, who has a software product that's very unique in the industry, and then Deepwell Services, who drills out frac plugs and horizontal wells. So called those folks, had some lunches, and said, hey, I would be an advisor level if you need that and they both agreed and so I've been working with both of them for the past three years uh, really not looking to take on a whole lot more work because I'm <laughs> supposed to be retired as my wife keeps telling me and we, that's right I know that problem <laughs> yeah we're, we're very blessed to be able to winter down in Naples and get away from the Pittsburgh weather which we've been up there since 1990 and I grew up in Pennsylvania so uh, you knew what you were getting there. Words, <laughs> it's, it's a, we're at a good point in our life right now. Yeah, yeah. Well, we met in California when we both worked for Getty Oil. That was the beginning of my career, and that was Bakersfield. So it wasn't quite Naples, Florida, but it was, it was pretty hot out there. It was very hot and no beach in sight. Yeah. About two hours from everywhere the mountains, the beaches. That's right. It was right. a good time out it there. Was I mean, it was good a good Great time. start to our careers and. Um, started with Getty Oil and then Texaco bought us, but then they had a big layoff and most of the Getty people survived. And I stayed out there for six years and did a lot of fun things in the reservoir and the drilling completions. Uh, did a lot of hydraulic fracturing in the uh, Lost Hills field, which was a porcelainite, which was we thought it was a shale. Um, and a lot of good things, a lot of oil wells, uh, as well as the heavy oil and the steam floods. And, and we had, uh, my memory was we had a great time and they had a bunch of trailers in back of the main building and that's we were right. back there. West side of Kern County. That's right. 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 And I yeah. think we had Patty who is, uh, helped us out as a technician. She was one of those chain smokers in the trailer. Oh, you remember that? Right. Before we had all the indoor no smoking policies. <gasps> that's right. That's right. Of, that was a, a long time ago. It yeah. Was a lot of fun. Well, and I stayed with uh, Texaco until I joined the Department of Energy at Elk Hills. And so the rest is history. I've told that story, the story many times. But you said, you said frack plug. And so that, um, just to help people out, I guess that means drilling out frack plugs is like after you frack a stick you plug it off and then you frack a new stage but it's probably more sophisticated than that it's not something I really know about tell us something about frack plugs so the industry's used this method now since the 20s or 20 years ago and in the Barnett shale they first developed it so you have a wire line just like you would for a regular log and you put a frack plug which is just a a, a plug that's going to be placed into the well that it should not move at that spot and then above that, we have a perforating gun. So the sequence is I run in and I perforate, I frack one stage, I run down hole, I pump down hole with the plug and the perf gun, I set the plug so it isolates the first stage, I perforate the next stage, and then I just keep repeating that throughout however many stages. And some wells may have 100 stages. You know, Mostly wells will have 50 to 75 stages. So I have that many plugs down hole. And now I have to go in with either cool tubing or uh, regular two and seven eighth inch tubing and drill it out. And Deepwell Services, who I've worked with for three years, and we've written three SP papers on this, uh, one with Chevron in the Permian, one with Matador in the Permian, and we won, wrote one for the International Hydraulic Fracture Conference last year in Oman. So if you want to learn real quickly about what Deepwell does and the two and seven eighths and a snubbing unit, 
I used to be in California. We had seven right, units. And right. Very scary, very dangerous. But now they're so safe. And it, it's just amazing technology. So it's been fun to see how that part of our industry has grown. Absolutely. So just to put a timeline together, those early days were the 80s. Correct. Okay, and Early so technologies 80s. have developed now to where it's very safe, and hydraulic fracture is part of what we do, and it's very safe. It's probably our our operations are probably the safest and the most environmentally responsible in the world. So that's all the more reason for oil and gas here at home. Yeah, I think that our industry is more regulated than the nuclear industry. Oh, interesting. Because we're constantly being looked at and re-regulated and re-regulated. And as we develop new best practices, we always go to the regulators and say, look, here's our new best practice. Why don't you incorporate this into your next policy documents because they want to keep updating those and stay think they're staying ahead of the operators. But the operators will always stay ahead of the regulators with the best practices. That's right. Yeah. So, That's but, right. I think you're right, and especially Pennsylvania, I think we're one of the most heavily regulated and safest and lowest emissions in the United States for what we do. Um, so we're pretty proud of that, and growing the more cells in the Utica in Pennsylvania and Ohio, West Virginia, um, I think we can be really proud of what we've done, which has now increased that area to 35 BCF per day. So it's a third of the, all the gas in the United States is coming from PA, Ohio, and West Virginia. Absolutely, and molecules being molecules, I mean, the people of Europe, I'm sure, with the LNG exports are very grateful for the work and the advances in technology. So absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So, okay. So um, hydraulic fracturing and the frac stages and the... So is there application uh, for... Um, these frac plugs and maybe the advanced technologies in the geothermal, because that's a big push to kind of transfer the skill sets in oil and gas to an industry doesn't exist yet, but, but could be, and more demand for petroleum engineers. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, and I'm not uh, too uh, into the depths of what is the latest and greatest in geothermal, but I do think that the plugs could be used, and there are dissolvable plugs, and those wells are going to have a very high bottom hole temperature. So while the dissolvables aren't as, uh, they don't dissolve totally, typically, and so in a regular oil and gas well, horizontal well, the operators are still going to go in and clean it out, make sure all those plugs are out. A geothermal well, uh, that I would think would degrade and be able to flow back out of the well if they're going to, to go that route. Typically, once they do a frack job, that well is going to be an injector. So in this case, you're going to have to flow it or clean it out. But yes, I think it's the same basic procedure. You're going to have yeah. the multiple hydraulic fractures, however they want to do that. It could have be a sleeve technology, which is totally different than a plug and perf. So I'm just not... Uh, up to speed as much as maybe I should be, but the, well, I know when you're working 375 degrees or over, it's a whole different world. Because our oil and gas field typically, you know, we're maybe 250. The Haynesville might push 300, and that's a whole different series of tools because everything starts to melt. 
Right. So. Right. Right. Oh, absolutely. And I always try to remind people that um, the petroleum engineer, the skill set of petroleum engineers, and the experience and and all of the support kind of work, or I don't want to say peripheral work, but it's part of a whole larger system, is transferable. And the energy companies of today are going to be the energy companies of tomorrow, especially with respect to the to the subsurface. Absolutely. So you've been in the oil and gas business for a long time, as <laughs> as I have too, and you've seen some changes in upstream. And what are some highlights of changes over time that you know you know people forget? I mean, sometimes people think that the um, oil and gas industry is like old technology or old ways of thinking about it, but it's a fairly sophisticated um, industry. Yeah, I think it's one of the highest tech industries that is in a manufacturing mode where you're constantly moving your equipment. It's it's not like uh, Campbell's Soup where you can build a, a robotic factory or a, a Ford Motor Company. This this industry is moving from location to location, and what we do on one well pad may be slightly different. You know, the orientation of the wells, the landing targets. So I've seen it advance from its simplest phase of vertical wells. We always had vertical wells up until maybe the end of 1990s. And so with the vertical wells, the question is always how close do we put them together? How big a frack job? How many zones vertically could I stimulate? And environmentally, you've seen all these huge changes where when you were drilling a well back in California in the 80s, I'm not sure we even had to line the pit to keep the drilling mud in. But the drilling mud was pretty much just clay and water anyway. It wasn't uh, you know, much of a mix of any chemicals. So the, everything has evolved in the ESG, in the technology, how fast and efficient we are. Um, so it's, it's been fun to see. Uh, as I like to tell people when I was the engineering champion, technology champion at range, you have these steady bumps of progress every year. And then every five years or so, I may have a quantum leap, like when range decided to go from 8,000 to 16,000 foot wells. That's a quantum leap. And that took nine months to study before we figured out we need new drilling rigs, new mud, new pumps. We're going to do uh, no more sliding. We're going to do a rotary steerable and floater casing in. Everything changed. And we wrote a good SP paper on that. But um, yeah, so the the technology just can continue, even in the AI that's starting to come into play or interpretations of 3D and 4D seismic. So it's been fun to watch. Absolutely, absolutely. And it kind of makes you proud that people are still, you know, thinking about new ways to develop a very important resource that's fundamental to our economy and, and the world's economy as well. So what do you, th- what do you think about, uh, what do you see in the future? What might be some, some near-term, I mean, I, I think we can all come up with some long-term research questions. What are some of the near-term research questions that would be good to know, you know, just to, what kinds of questions are we asking ourselves to improve efficiency or recovery or, you know, any operations? Yeah, I think that the parent-child interactions has been on everyone's mind, uh, especially when you have big plays like out in the Midland Basin or the Delaware out in Texas and eastern New Mexico. Uh, They're drawing in multiple layers, so over a thousand or 2,000 feet, you're going to have multiple wells stacked. And so what is the sequence to drill them? How long should I come in to infill them? Uh, so that is still, uh, I would say, things that are being answered in real term. 
Um, ResFrac, who I work with, has a simulator that uh, attempts to answer those problems. It's a FRAC model coupled with a production model. So we've been doing a lot of studies over the U.S. and Canada specific to the parent-child relationship. In some basins, the parent well will frack into the child and damage it. And thank God that doesn't happen all that often in the oil wells, but uh, in the Marcellus and sometimes in the Haynesville, there are plays where if you're fracking into an offset, it's going to load up temporarily, but it'll take some time till it gets back to its old level. So those are issues. How do I dampen the impact of those interaction because the fracks go a long way. The water is going to go out there and go across one or two wells typically. And then I'd say the final one, uh, there's, I could go on and on and on, but the final one just to bring up quickly is the sand. And we've always asked ourselves, uh, where's the sand end up? Because we pump a lot of sand into a lot of perforation clusters. So we create a lot of hydraulic fractures. So invariably, the geometry and the prop sand in each of those is probably different. The rocks crack asymmetrically. They may go one direction out of the well bore, may go both. Um, so there's still a lot we don't know, and I'm, I'm waiting on my invention is, and you heard it here first, but I'm sure there's a thought of this, the, the movie Twister and Dorothy, where they put those little sound and pressure and temperature devices. I think someday we'll put that in our propping. <gasps> oh. And you can, somehow you're going to have to hear it or log it so you can get a three-dimensional and it'll probably be in a planar shape so you're really gonna have to hit it from both sides to see that plane of sand how high is it how long did it go out so we, we still have I think that is on the horizon questions. I think I think that's on the horizon um, in terms of uh, tr translating the bench scale capabilities into real applications. Uh, one of my earlier podcast guests was uh, Dr. Bjorn, Bjorn Paulson um, from Van Nuys, California. And his work sponsored by the Department of Energy was actually a little sphere with a sensor in it. And you could hear where the sensor went. So if you put it in with the sand, you could hear where it went. Now, could you control it? That's, that's the right. question, right? I mean, that's really what you want to do in, in hydraulic fracturing is control where the fractures go, be more efficient, use less sand, you know, all of the above. Um, so that's really, there's a pathway there. The fundamentals are in place. But we in DOE, we always wanted to be able to master the subsurface in real time. Hmm. Right, that's yeah. that would be a wonderful thing be, to be able to do. Definitely would be. And, you know, I think of another thing while we're we're bringing this up, the fact that we now have a better image of what the perforations are doing. We used to think, yeah, the perfs erode some, but we didn't think they eroded as fast and as large or in, in an odd shape as they do, and that influences how much water and sand goes out each hole or each perforation cluster. So. The research that's been done in the last five years and all the great SPE papers written on that topic alone has advanced our understanding to get us to the point of extreme limited entry perforating. So fewer holes, smaller holes, because we know they're going to erode, and we keep an extra high pressure on the treating process so that all of those uh, perforations are in critical flow. If they erode too much, you're going to get out of critical flow, and you might lose most of the, the frac fluid into one perf. So that's a big advancement that I've seen as well. Oh, yeah. Does that speak to the manufacture of pipe and its ability to withstand that um, erosion? Um, is, it, is it really just the mechanical um, 
uh, uh, control of the sand and the water and the rates that you're injecting. I mean, it, there's it, a lot of moving parts, it seems to me. There are. And I think that the price we're willing to pay for pipe that is available and plentiful, and most of our pipe is purchased in it, it's made and purchased in the United States. Right. I know when I was range, we were 100% made in the United States, and that's important to us. And so you could probably get pipe that wouldn't erode as much, but it would cost so much more. So it led us to think we can control this erosion process. We know it's going to go on. Right. We don't know exactly where it's going to go on, right. but we know it's heelward biased as opposed to toe biased. Right. So, um, and then, you know, picture if I'm towards the heel perf clusters and they start taking 80% of the job. Well, I have very little sand to carry out past that towards the toe. So sometimes they'll screen out because they're at a low rate. And so it creates a lot of abnormalities. It used to. Now I think we're ahead of it. But I'm not sure people are looking at the quality of the pipe just because my guess is it'd be a lot more expensive. Be more expensive and you want to exhaust all your other options for control before you get to more money. <laughs> so, Correct. Yeah. So I see that and, now. And it's, the steel mills are used to making pipe certain ways, certain specs. Right. And I don't know what would be involved with changing that. That might be like saying to them, okay, let's not make any more gas engine let's make evs and, that, yeah. and then how long would that take to switch over yeah switch over and then what's what's the market and how long will it last and yeah. all of the above and, and if so. you ask the industry they're going to say yeah that's not a problem anymore we figured it out yeah some things you want to have stay put stand still like all engineers once we get a problem solved we're past that yeah let's get to another problem <laughs> another more fun problem so um so you've been involved with spe for the whole of your career it seems like and um and you um were a two-time lecture distinguished lecturer what did you talk about and when when did that happen and so, Tell us about um, that. You know, I've been involved with SPE since college. I think it was 1979. One of the professors says everybody needs to sign up for SPE and get involved. And so I took that seriously. And in Bakersfield, we had a really busy chapter. So I got involved and got on the board, saw how things worked in the networking. And then I went to Houston for a couple years and was active down there. And then when I got to Pittsburgh, then I went through the whole board rotation. And then it was kind of on the more national thing. So I've been on a lot of committees like the annual technical conference, the hydraulic fracture technical, the international hydraulic fracture, on and on and on and on. And I just was plugged in because I felt like that was what I should be doing for the industry. And when I was consulting for 15 years, a good way to make connections and meet operators and sell our studies. So it's been real fun. It's been um, a lot of effort outside of your main job. I mean, I can't tell you how many thousands and thousands of thousands of abstracts I've rated for all these, uh, you know, these programs and conferences we put on and workshops. And, um, but it, it's, it, it's really is, uh, I, I would encourage, it's really part of, I think, what all the engineers should be doing and even the geologists, you know, we're part of AAPG. They can be part of SPE. Right. And you don't have to be a petroleum engineer to be part of SPE. Right. Uh, so it's been fun. And a distinguished lecture, the first time, um, that was with range. And maybe in 2014 or 15, I can't remember. But it was right before the oil market crash. So it was probably I was nominated in 13 and my tour began in 14 as the industry, the oil part of it. And the gas part of it was already low gas prices. 
three bucks or less. Right. And the talk was how shale formations transform the world's energy supply. And it just was simply goes through all the the new drilling technologies, the pad drilling, our ability to steer the wells, drill long horizontal, how do we complete them and frack them, and then what is all the world oil? It was really three talks in one, three 15-minute talks, and it had a, the world oil supply and the U.S., Canada, you know, oil supply and demand, and um, and then what's the future technology. So that was a fun one, albeit when I was giving that, uh, you know, I went to Europe and I went to into Canada and, and U.S. and Alaska, everybody was so down because oil prices got crushed. Right, right. The second one was with Deep Well, and it was just to educate people about using a snubbing unit because most people use cool tubing to drill out those frack plugs that we talked about earlier. But once the well gets past 10, 11, 12,000 feet, it's too long for coil to get out. It's just so much friction and you're pushing it, and that coil is malleable. And people were getting stuck and were risked to getting stuck, like the Chevron paper. They switched down there in the Permian because they stuck a couple cool tubings and it was a couple million bucks to fish it out. So they brought in the hydraulic completion unit, the snubber, with deep well and had no problems. So it's been uh, a real important part of our industry. And now that in, that is over in Argentina. Hopefully it'll be in the Middle East for the snubbing and using that stick pipe, they call it, just yeah. two and seven eight inch uh, real heavy duty uh, tubing, P one ten stick pipe. That's yeah. what they call it out in the field. Yeah, we would call it tubing. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, it's pretty interesting. They have a mud motor down hole, just like the coil does, and uh, they got a lot of weight to push. Yeah, and yeah. pull. Yeah, yeah. So, absolutely. So, um, distinguished lecture is a, a wonderful honor. I know, but it. It's pretty hard work. I mean, you have like, you're like a band touring the country, right? But you're touring the world. You're like one night someplace, and then the next day you're in another place giving another lecture. And so it's, uh, and, it, and you have to do it all in a year. How many, do you know how many stops you made? How many lectures you made in a With year? the range tour, I think I made 25 stops. Oh, boy. But in a year. <laughs> in a year. So you typically go out for two weeks, and yeah. I think I went out for three two-week tours. One was overseas, and two were in the U.S. and Canada. And then with Deepwell, it was a little less. I think I did 20 stops, and they were all virtual, except a couple of them down south in the U.S. where they opened up their sections. But most of them were virtual, so those were places all around the world that yeah. wanted to hear about that talk yeah 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 the, i guess that i forgot about that part that's right i i, I want to forget about yeah, I do too. that part but um yes but my my appreciation for distinguished lecture is that you got your day job and then you've got your spe job and you only have a year to do it and you want you need to get out as to as many sections as you can around the world and so it's it's definitely it's an honor and you're honored to serve, I'm sure, but it's pretty rigorous. So, yeah. And luckily, yeah. Um, each section is only allowed two, it used to be three speakers per year, and each section will select what topics they want to hear. There's typically 32 DLs per year, and so they only get three, and you have to be picked. And, uh, and then if you were picked, let's say if China or somewhere India picked me up, but they're the only section over in that part of the world, then they wouldn't set up a schedule. Now, they would set up a virtual with them, but back when they were 
traveling. There wasn't a virtual. Right. They didn't have that capability, believe it or not. Right, right. Uh, so, yeah, it's really changed. I hope that they continue on with the travel schedule. Yeah. Because it, it's it's really a test of endurance. And as you get older, it's <laughs> it's not that fun taking the red eye. And then you get a couple hours sleep. And then you get up and go to right. give your talk, eat right. a big lunch, you know. <laughs> Have fun with the small 25 people in your section in Montana and, yeah. and then uh, yeah. go to the airport and do it again. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it's definitely, um, there's nothing like having a face-to-face conversation about something technical because people go there to learn. I mean, from the distinguished lecturer, they put things together the whole story together and you can ask a question that cuts across very many pieces to really understand the limits of your understanding of this particular topic and there's nothing that replaces that i don't think you get the same feel on a virtual presentation but um no. so so i just i'm, yeah. I'm very honored that uh, spe has that program so the in-person visits are always unpredictable because sometimes you may have a landowner show up uh, or a public official or a journalist and so once you get into the question and answer, and you're typically within a small crowd, less than 100 people. I think the most I ever had turnout was like 200 people, which is big for an SB section meeting. Yeah, yeah. And, but, you know, you had some think on your feet moments. You know, should I say that? I know that's the right answer. But <laughs> is that the thing I should be saying right now? Who else is in this room? And right. so it was, uh, right. it, it had its moments. Yeah, yeah. Live is always going to be unpredictable. Absolutely. If, it, if you're talking about technology, yeah, you know that inside out. You start to get into politics or policies or guessing on the future. And at that point, I was on Range's executive team and was helping out their um, public relations and investment relations efforts. And so, you know, you, you go to those conferences and you really had to watch what you say. Uh, so I had enough training, but it's just different on the the first distinguished lecture tour yeah yeah really fun moments right right and sometimes people will ask you a question switch from their point of view it's a perfectly reasonable logical question but from your point of view it's got so many angles so many ramifications (laughs) so many potential you know that's not what i meant kind of moments and so yeah i know absolutely yeah working for the government i was always having to be very 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 careful that what i said did not reflect on the administration unless it was approved or whatever so and of course thank god i nothing that i worked on was secure right everything was in the public domain so i didn't have to worry about that piece but but yeah, that's a very special, it's a very special skill. I like to just talk. So yeah, that's, uh, me that. too. My wife says you'll just say whatever's on the tip of your tongue. Yeah. Well, we're we're almost out of time, Joe. I, I wonder if there's anything else you would like to share with our with no. our listeners about upstream, about the future, about uh, oil and gas. I mean, what what? Maybe, uh, maybe just as a as a go back in time, and then we'll we'll end with uh, what I think. Matt happened down the road um you know how i got into this business is i went went into general engineering at penn state and two years first two years the engineers pretty much have all the same curriculum and i didn't even take an intro to one of the engines like mechanical or chemical uh because i didn't know which one to pick and i'll never forget it my dad said he says well you know which engineering uh degrees are you're going to get a job 100 percent you're going to get a job so petroleum engineering 1981 79 80 81 were the big booming years and so i went into that and uh 
and had not had any exposure. You know, you, I grew up on the east part of Pennsylvania with no oil and gas. And then uh, my first job was with Gulf Oil down in Hobbs, New Mexico. Oh, and that's Mike, a culture shock. Mike Jones was, uh, God love me, called me Yankee all year long. Oh. <laughs> and I was Yankee, do this, Yankee, do that, Yankee. get out there to the pumping units. And our job were well testers. So yeah. we go to all these expiration wells, and it was either a pumping unit, we do a dynamometer, which is just measures the fluid and the efficiency of the pump, or we would go to a flowing well, a gas well, and do a packer leakage test or buildup or whatever. But I learned a lot, and you, you learned that the smell of oil in the air was a good thing. That's right. It smelled like money. So anyway... Um, so that's, that was how I really fell in love quickly with oil and gas and got out and went to California with Getty Oil, met you. That's right. Met a lot that's of great right. people in the that's business right. who are still dear friends yeah. scattered all over uh, the U.S. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of us are retiring, so. Yeah, yeah. Retiring but not staying retired, huh? No. no. <laughs> Failing at retiring. No, I'll, I'll get there eventually. Well, great. Well, um, Joe Franz, uh, uh President and CEO of France and Associates. Thank you so much for being our guest today and for sharing all your contributions about oil, upstream oil and gas. Thank you so much, Elaine. It was fun talking with you and getting caught up again. That's right. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Please give us a review and tell us what you like and what you'd like to hear about on future podcasts. This is Elena Melkert, your host for Oil and Gas Upstream. More next time. Join us again next week on the Oil and Gas Upstream podcast, a production of the Oil and Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.